That's good stuff. Let's pray. Lord God, you are worthy of all praises and all honor and all glory. So God, we come before you and we exalt you. There is none like you. You are the treasure in the field. And I pray, God, that we would leave everything else behind because of how beautiful you are to us. God, we need help this morning from your word. We are all too well aware of our struggles to pray. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would move us convict us, encourage us, and call us to be a church that prays. God, may um, years from now people continue to tell the stories of how you delivered us, God, how you answered prayer, how you showed yourself to be the only one true God. And Lord, may that be the DNA of this church long after everyone in this room is gone. And if you tarry, may this still be a church who prays to the only true God. Don't pass us by this morning. Come and move among us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We continue our um, our foundational series. <clears throat> just if you've just now joined us for the first time, this is kind of a mixture of a lecture and a sermon. Uh, we tried to discuss how we do things at Sovereign Life um, and uh, why um, we take the emphasis on certain things that we take. And uh, I would say this, uh, church at the end of the day is, uh, despite what you may hear from Facebook or uh, church growth conferences or things like that, church is actually a very simple idea from the scriptures. Um, and I think our hope as a church is that we would return uh, when we planted this church, replanted it. We really hope to do some uh, very few things uh, and we want to do them very well. Uh, we have several people out today. I hope that's because of vacation sickness and not because we preached on missions last week. Uh, and now we're doing prayer and people are like, I ain't going up there. I might end up going to the mission field. So uh, I don't know, but hopefully that's what it is. I know there are several that are out sick, uh, so be aware of that. Um, in the spring of 1993, uh, at, not long after I turned 19, I was invited by uh, Dick Stagner, my former youth minister, who I'd only had the privilege of sitting under for uh, not even quite a year, uh, invited me to a lunch uh, to interview for a youth internship job um, with two of the candidates. Uh, I knew the other two candidates. Uh, one ended up in ministry, one ended up as a seminary professor. And so I knew right off the bat that I was not going to be the one chosen. Uh, but uh, they said there was free pizza involved. And so uh, I went. Uh, I went and uh, sat down in front of a guy named Keith Wilkerson, who at the end of that, um, only because God wanted to put him through a refiner's fire. Um, <laughs> God asked him to take me as an intern. It was only supposed to be for a summer and ended up being about three years. 
uh, and it was a joyful time, and I would honestly say that I am a product uh, of, in ministry of Bruce Wells, Keith Wilkerson, and Dick Stagner, and I am happy to announce that, by the way, and very happy about that for sure. Um, and I would say that it was a, uh, a shocking meeting when he said, I think you're the guy, and I was like, me? I had my mouth full of pizza. I was like, me? Are you sure? And he invited me to the church. I figured it was some little bitty tiny church, like 33 people, you know, uh, with one youth. And it turned out to be a fairly large church for the large youth ministry program. And I remember uh, my first Sunday that they invited me to come and just experience the service. And I sat on the front row of the church. Um, Keith uh, began to play. I recognized a couple of very, uh, a couple of things very early on that made me extremely uncomfortable. And the first, there was no hymn books. Uh, and I had no idea what we were going to sing. Even the youth camp I had gone to as a young kid had, uh, had hymnals. Uh, some of you in here are going, that's about right. <laughs> Only the hymnals were inspired. Um, you need to go read some of those hymns. Uh, some of them are not that great. Uh, anyway, I'll just leave that alone. That's another sermon. Um, moving right along. Oh, I could go there. Moving right along, though. The second thing, it reminded me of, of, of I felt like it was kind of like a youth camp atmosphere, and, and I thought, well, that's fine. They got these things on the screen, and, and there was someone actually tra- had a transparency. You know, remember that, the overhead projector, and they were moving. Tra- I was like, I don't want that job. I hope that's not the youth intern job. And um, the second thing that happened that made me very uncomfortable is about the second song. I'm on the very front row. I don't remember what we ran back then, probably 600 or so, maybe, five, something like that. Yeah, it was decent, and, and there were some people who came down the aisle during the service and began to kneel at the altar and pray. Now, some of you would go, God's good. I thought they had violated protocol, <laughs> and I'm serious. I literally had the thought, what are these people doing? Down here in the middle of the service, the pastor isn't even in the front how, who would they be praying with? How can they? And there was more people that began to show up, more people that began to show up. About 10 minutes into that, the entire altar was full of people, and I knew at that moment that I was in a cult. And uh, <laughs> I knew I was in a cult. But the Lord led me there, and most, most of my understanding of church and most of my understanding of Scripture was completely altered uh, by my experience of that church. Uh, and when it came to prayer... Uh, you would be hard-pressed to find a pastor um, that I've ever known who had a, uh, a more solid framework of going to the Lord in prayer. And the church was built uh, a lot like that. And so um, one of my hopes as a guy who replanted a church uh, would be not that we would become like that church. That's a false idea. <laughs> but that we would become like a church we see in the Bible, which was what Bruce was trying to do as well. And that is that prayer became a, uh, just a natural thing for the church. Uh, it wasn't uncomfortable. And let's just admit, it's uncomfortable. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of outs real quick. This is not going to be about your private prayer life, although it has some implications. So everybody can go, <sighs> I think we all know we need to pray more, right? Like, I don't know if I've never met anyone who's heard that sermon and went, no, actually, I think I pray a lot. I don't need to pray anymore. We, we're all there. We know that. Uh, But this is going to be about congregational prayer, which I agree, uh, just for you seminarians in here, I I agree that if you don't have a, because we got some, if you don't have a private prayer life that is robust, it makes it difficult to have a congregational prayer time that is robust. I get that. That's just not the emphasis of this particular 
passage. So let me set the scene of Acts chapter 12. In Acts 11, the church of Antioch, they have had some issues, and now we are told right at the end of chapter 11 that there is a worldwide famine that is coming into play. Um, Now, Famine may not be a big deal to us. We don't have any concept of that. Unless you go to a buffet, and the pizza buffet, and they only have like two pizzas on it. We think that's famine, you know, because they don't have our pizza on there. That's not famine here. When a famine happened in biblical times, people died. Lots of people died. And if you were among the poor, you died first. And so a famine is a big deal. And when it comes to these believers, they knew there was going to be issues that would have to be handled by a very young church. Churches across the Middle East and across this area would have to deal with some difficulties when it came to how we help those who are poor among our midst to not starve to death. And that begins chapter 12. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it says that about that time, Herod the king, and not the Herod who put all the babies to death uh, uh, in Jesus, when Jesus was born, but um, a different Herod. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, And it opened for them of its own accord. Now, if you were a Star Wars fan like I was as a kid, this is so cool, right? Am I the only one who's seeing this? He's walking through and everything's just opening. I mean, it is so cool to me. This is in the Bible. You get that, right? Like they're walking, things are just opening up. Like these are, this is not the apostle you're looking for. Anyway, some of you who are Star Wars fans got that. Anyway, (laughs) it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. In verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, these are Baptists, by the way, "Um, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. 
Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. Can you imagine that scene? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, it's a great story. I love this. Um, I love the supernatural parts of the Bible. Don't you? Aren't you glad the God we serve is supernatural? Some of you just got uncomfortable. <laughs> this is not about the gifts. I just love that Peter is one asleep. I would not have been asleep. Would you have been asleep? I'd have been a little nervous. But he's asleep. An angel shows up, hits him on the side, tells him to get up and get dressed quickly. Chains fall off. They walk past all the guards, and the gates open up. I mean, this, is a, this is a great God that we serve. Now, here's how a prosperity guy would preach this passage. If you're visiting with us today, we are not a prosperity church. <laughs> but here's how a prosperity guy would preach this passage. He would get you riled up about whatever situation you're in, whatever difficulties you're facing, whether it be financial or job or marriage, and then he would start saying, we need to pray, and God will release you from the prison. That's what we need to pray. We need to pray, and I'd get you worked up, and you'd begin to say that, and all that would be good, and we'd get all excited, and we'd all go about our day, but we would leave off a very important part of this story. That is, James is dead. James, the apostle, one of the sons of thunder died. And they would say, well, that's because the church didn't get a chance to pray yet. Yeah, God allowed him to be killed before the church even had a chance to pray. It's an important thing for us to understand. Because before you can pray and ask God to do anything in the world of blessing you or to rescue you, you must have a solid theological framework for suffering. Because if you don't have a framework for suffering, then you will believe that when God doesn't deliver you, like James, like Stephen, like John the Baptist, like Peter eventually, and the list goes on and on, then you will believe that God either couldn't do it or that you didn't have enough faith the right way. And we're going to see that that can't even be the case here because even this church was surprised that Peter was released. You have to have a solid framework of understanding suffering. Now, having said that, there's also a danger. My greatest fear for this church in the area of prosperity gospel is not that we're going to fall into the prosperity gospel. Let me tell you why. Uh, I was Joe Hamper and I were having lunch Friday. If I were to get up here and preach a prosperity gospel, um, there would be about, Ben's already shaking his head, <laughs> there would be about 17 people. I would even make it through the preaching <laughs> before some people would remove me. And somebody made a comment to Joe, would he be hurt? And Joe said, well, I wouldn't get a chance to hurt him because there would be so many other people ahead of him. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Here's my, here's my, here's my uh, nervousness about that. Is that because we're so worried about the prosperity gospel that we move ourselves away from expecting God to do amazing things that we ask? Anti prosperity gospel is not anti blessing, 
and it is not anti-requesting. It is understanding with a theological framework of suffering that God is sovereign, and we can most certainly ask with the expectation that God will do it with the understanding that if he doesn't, it's not because he loves us less, but it's because he loves us. So let's revisit this subject very briefly, not because it doesn't need more time, but because we have hammered this pretty hard in our church and in our focus class. But one, God is sovereign. Psalms 135 verse 6 says it this way, the Lord does whatever pleases him. The Lord does whatever pleases him, not us. Any of y'all have children? Any of y'all ever asked for recommendations where to go to eat? And they said McDonald's, and you're like, no. Because <laughs> we as parents do what pleases us often, amen? Only Wayne and I. <laughs> the rest are like, mm, we're hoping to get there one day. <laughs> we understand the concept of what it means to please us. Listen, there is no higher person to please than God. And so when God does everything to please himself, it is not selfish and it is not sinful because there is no higher thing to please than God. Number two, we make our plans, but God directs the steps. Proverbs 16.9 says it this way, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let me give you a quick little biblical story. When Joseph is in prison... He's hoping that God will deliver him from prison. Remember this? And God is sovereign, and he knew what he was doing at far, but I love Chad Malden one day teaching me this. He said, don't forget that even though God is sovereign, and he is, and even though God had a plan, it did not keep Joseph from reminding people to help him get out of prison. Amen? Hey, Baker, you remember me? When you get there, get a chance to get me out, get me out. There's still a desire. We still make our attempts to get ourselves into a better position recognizing that God is sovereign. And then the framework of suffering and requesting, I think, is best illustrated in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have failed to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and he's now going to throw them in the fiery furnace. And we pick it up in verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar says, now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Listen to that statement. And who is the God who can deliver you out of my hand? You hear how Nebuchadnezzar is setting himself up? And in verse 16, it said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Hear that first statement. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> We're not bowing down, brother. <laughs> and you can throw us in the, fiery, in the fiery pit, but you just said what God can deliver us out of your hand. Let me tell you whose God can. My God can. My God can deliver me. Verse 18. But if not... Easy for us to say. They're standing in front of the fiery furnace. And he says, here's your chance. You bow down or I'll throw you in here. 
and no God can deliver you from my hand. And they look at the furnace, and they look at Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, listen, we don't really even need to answer this, but we just want you to know our God can deliver us. But let me help you understand something. Even if he doesn't, even if you toss us in and we burn to death, we need you to understand that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is a framework for suffering. I believe God can, will, and is more than able to deliver me. And I'm going to request that. And if I was in front of the fire furnace, I would be praying that. Amen? Who's going, you know, I've been thinking about ways to die. This is a good way. I mean, no one's thinking that. But in our DNA as believers, in our prayer, we say, this is what I request. But even if you don't choose to do that, you are still the great God. So James is dead, and Peter is arrested. As you all know, Stephen has already been martyred, but he wasn't even an apostle. James was. And this young church has lost one of its leaders, and probably the most prominent one at this time, Peter, is in prison awaiting the same fate. So this church, our church, the church, is in trouble. <clears throat> this would be serious stuff. One, by the way, that our American church has no concept of. We think we're in trouble based on who got elected. <laughs> right? We don't really have a good framework for any of this stuff. This is serious stuff here. James has been decapitated, most likely. That was the method they generally used. They cut his head off. Peter is in prison. And make no doubt that since Herod knew the Jews were pleased with his persecution, <laughs> more was coming. And these believers huddled into these houses, more than likely more than one house. We have a description of one, but I bet there were others that were praying as well are all too well aware of what's going on. And what does this church do? Well, they call a business meeting. <clears throat> they call their congressman. Nope. They decide to gather and immediately pray. Isn't it interesting that this default church, or this church is, who's brand new, its default idea is to gather and pray? so foreign to us in our language. How many of y'all have ever been in a hospital room with some people who were either in a bad situation or maybe at a friend's house where they were telling you of a bad medical condition? And the response is something like this. Well, the doctors have told us the only thing left to do is pray. The only thing left to do is pray? <laughs> like, I know doctors, and doctors who love Jesus would tell you, let's pray first, <laughs> and then ask me to do something. Do you see how we even communicate it? Like, like we exhaust all of the resources first, and then we go, well, none of that's worked, so, I mean, I guess we could just pray. That's, this church is, that's not how they think about it. Their default is to gather and pray as its first priority. 
That's interesting. Prayer is mentioned in Acts 31 times, and almost every single time it's corporate. It's the gathered body of believers coming together to pray. Now, this is not going to be like most corporate prayer meetings that most of us have attended. Uh, Growing up, uh, most prayer meetings uh, were also gossip sessions. Amen? Shake your head. Who else do we need to pray for? We need to pray for Cindy. You notice she ain't been to church lately. (laughs) Just because she's drinking (laughs) and partying. And everyone's like, oh, like John. Yeah, like John. And then that's how the prayer meetings went. Am I right? Any of you ever been to those meetings? I have. That's most of our prayer meetings. Or most corporate prayer meetings were like this. Hey, we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer. And we're going to have someone pray for us. It's like two minutes of silence, and then one guy says something like, Lord, I don't know what all the requests are today, but whatever they are, uh, hope you do something with them. Amen. And then people leave going, man, it was a powerful prayer service. It's not the prayer service that we have here. 1 Thessalonians 5, we have this idea to pray without ceasing, and I understand that. It was our older reading. We are always to be in an attitude of prayer. Prayer should flow regularly from our heart to God throughout our days and our nights, Prayers for help, prayer for thanksgiving, prayers for wisdom, uh, confession for sin, prayers for mercy, uh, prayers for others. But this prayer time in Acts 12 by the gathered church is different. It is singularly focused. They gather with one desire, and that is to have Peter rescued. Now, it doesn't specifically say that, but we can draw a conclusion from the text that what they were praying for is what God does. And they describe this prayer in Acts 12. The writer says it is earnest prayer. And that's a verb. And in the Greek, it means to stretch out the hand. It means to stretch yourself in prayer, to have earnest, resolute, tense prayer time. It's probably what you would do if you found out you were terminal. Yeah, your prayer would shift. The intensity would change. Imagine this gathered body of believers. They come in. James is dead. Let me help you understand this a little bit better. I got to pick an elder to die. You're on the front row, brother. (laughs) The government cracks down on the church. We come back after the crackdown, and I'll let you know Matei has been killed. Wayne's in prison. (laughs) And they're gathering up for us. We need to pray. Would that be a different prayer meeting? That's earnest prayer. And it's not dictated by the length of time that they prayed, but rather the intensity of it. It is a focused time of prayer. It is clear, direct. There are no mom's cousin's best friend's boss who has a sister whose daughter's boyfriend's boss is sick. We're not praying for any of that stuff. It's not what we're praying for. They're praying for something very specific with great intensity, believing that God would deliver them. Charles Henry McIntosh, who died in 1896, said this about congregational prayer. The simple fact is we are too vague 
and as a consequence, too indifferent in our prayers and prayer meetings. We do not seem like people asking for what they want and waiting for what they ask. And this is what destroys, destroys our prayer meetings, rendering, rendering them pointless and powerless, turning them into teaching or talking meetings rather than deep-toned, earnest prayer meetings. J.B. Johnston in his book, I love this book, it's an old book, uh, it is entitled, The Prayer Meeting and Its History is Identified with the Life and Power of Godliness and the Revival of Religion. <laughs> I would have edited that one, but whatever. <laughs> he said this, <clears throat> and he's right. As prayer meetings fail in a congregation, so will the ministrations of the pastor become unfruitful, the preaching of the word fail to convert sinners and promote holiness and the professors of religion. History confirms the truth that wherever evangelical and vital religion flourish, there lives the earnest gatherings for social prayer. And these believers here in chapter 12, they gathered and were earnest with their prayers. They stretched them out, stretched themselves out for Peter. They focused, intense, and no doubt crying out to God on behalf of their leader. And they were expecting God to do something. What I'm sure, what I'm not sure of is what they actually thought would happen. Uh, but their decision to pray meant they believed the only thing worth doing at that moment was to pray. And so they were praying for something. I mean, what else were they going to do? What else would this band of new believers do? Would they mount up an attack against the Roman guards? Would they reveal themselves as Christians and make an appeal to Herod to release Peter? There was no hope in any of that. They understood what they were against. King Herod, the Roman Empire, their system. So how does a bunch of unarmed newbie Christians, who, by the way, have never attended a prayer conference on how to pray? No seminaries exist yet. No one's written a book on how to pray like this. Well, they just decide to pray. They know that God is their only hope. And so they pray. And that is a key point for churches. That we move to a point where we believe the only hope we have is God. Nothing else will happen if we don't pray to him now, the church is surprised when God answers. In verse 13, it says, When Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizes Peter's voice and her joy. She didn't even open the gate. She just ran back in and said, It's Peter at the gate. In verse 15, they said, The very people praying that Peter would, something would happen with Peter are told Peter's at the door, and this <laughs> group of people says, Not possible. You are out of your mind. Now, can you imagine being Rhoda at that moment? Rhoda going, uh, no, really, he, he really is out there. And they say, it's not possible. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. You know what I would love for our church to have regular occurrences of? For us to go before our great God that we claim is sovereign and controls all things and is all-powerful and is the only one and true God who exists and has existed and will exist 
forever and ever and ever, who rules over all things and who holds all things together, that we would come to him and say, God, we want you to do this, and that God would do it, and we would stand back amazed at who he is. You think these believers' prayer life was encouraged at that moment? If they had a problem the next week, nobody asked for a meeting. You know what they said? I guarantee you. Now you maybe say, you're reading this into the text. I believe you can read it into the text. If they said, hey, we got another problem, what do you think we should do? I think people said, well, why don't we? Probably a bunch of ladies would say this. Well, while you men are stumbling around, we women say we ought to just go pray like we did last time. Amen? And God would hear us. Now, we would say, and this messes with my brain a little bit, that we would have to be believe in what we're praying for in order to God to answer it. If we don't believe, then God won't answer it. In Matthew chapter 21, 18 through 22, Jesus seems to indicate that, right? In verse 18 is when they uh, return to the city. Uh, they become hungry, verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on, on it but leaves. And he said to him, may no fruit ever, said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw, they marveled and said, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You've got to have faith, right? Well, I know some of you seminarians in here might say, well, that's just, that's only for the apostles. That was only for the apostles. Oh, that's good. Let's go to James chapter 5, 16 through 18. James says this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I love that it says the prayer of a righteous person. It does not say the prayer of the righteous apostle. Am I the only one glad that it doesn't say apostle there? It says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I just want you to understand what's happening there. James is saying the prayers of a righteous man does great things. His illustration is not that someone prayed that someone would get over a cold. His illustration is that somebody stopped it from raining. That's in the Bible, folks. By the way, it says that Elijah had a nature like ours. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad that James wrote that? I love that. So righteous people can pray powerful prayers. And when the Bible refers to the church, the gathering of this assembly, it is speaking to believers, not just to anyone who happens to be in the group, but rather redeemed believers have the ability for powerful prayers. Now, some of us would lean and say hard, but righteous means perfect, to be found with no fault. Who can possibly do that? How can a bunch of sinners become righteous? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. It's the power of the gospel. I need, to un- I need you to understand right now that if you're redeemed, if you're a believer, James is speaking to you. Go with me for a moment. You were born into sin. Nobody taught you how to sin. You sin naturally. 
And that sin separated you from a holy, holy, holy God. And you were an object of wrath. That's what God was going to pour out on you. And yet, even when you were sinning, even when you were actively in rebellion against this great God, that God loved you. And he loved you so much that he sent Christ to live the righteous life that you could never live, to be perfect, and to take your punishment on the cross that you and I richly deserved. And for those who would put their faith and repent and believe in Christ, that Christ would take our sin and we would get his righteousness. Oh, this is good. Thank you. Because <laughs> this is good. Look, this is what the gospel is. This is what we need to be proclaiming from churches, not self-help stuff. You can never be good enough. You are sinners. I am a sinner. We need someone to rescue us. And God loved us so much that he sent Christ to do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So you may ask you this, well, how do I become a believer? Don't I have to repair, repeat a certain kind of prayer? Let me tell you what the Bible says. Repent and believe. You repent means you look at your life and you say, Lord, this is not who you've called me to be. This is not what I want to be about. I recognize that the way I live my life and the way I think and the way I act is sinful towards you, and I don't want to do that anymore. I need help. And I believe, I believe that you can rescue me. And I commit to follow you all the days of my life. Help me walk away from the passions of my old self. Help me, Lord Jesus. And that's salvation. You can say it a thousand different ways. But unless you repent and believe, you will never become a believer. You say, well, how will I know? I tell you, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 told us you will be a new creation. You will not be perfect because you will still have these old ignorant passions that we all have to deal with, but you will be different. And from now on, when you sin, there will be this thing called conviction that will come over you, and you will see it, and you will feel it, and it will be a weight upon you that what you just did or what you just said or what you just thought about is not who we should be in Christ. And you will have this yearning for holiness. We may battle it and we may struggle to get there, but there is now a battle, whereas beforehand there was no battle. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is a Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You want to know what we ought to be doing as a church? That's what we ought to be doing as a church, preaching the gospel. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, listen, believer, you got to hear this if you're going to pray powerfully, not counting their trespasses against them. Oh, oh, I don't know what your trespasses are, but I'm glad God's not counting them against me anymore, anymore because of Christ. And he entrusted Jason Williams with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
you in Christ are righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Now you can boldly enter into the throne room and ask God for help in your time of need. Do you want to know why? Because you're righteous in Christ. Man, that should change the way we pray. It should change the way we pray. God answers prayers for us because of his grace and his mercy and his love. Even, even when we struggle in our faith and with our understanding, even with our belief, because we are his children. Aren't you glad that our God gives us things that we weren't even expecting or even asking for? Just because he's a good father. We prayed very lightly, I would say, as an elder group, very lightly that God would give us a new place. And the elders went all over town, and I will confess this, that we spent more time looking at new places that we could meet at than we ever did praying. And yet God, despite our lack of prayer, blessed us. Because that's how good our Father is. Imagine what would happen if we got earnest in our prayer time. Who knows what could happen? Sometimes, even when we struggle with our belief, God helps us. I love in Mark chapter 9, one of my favorite stories. I know I'm running a little late, and I don't care. So here we go. (laughs) And you shouldn't either, because this is the word of God. Mark chapter 9 21 through 24 said this, and Jesus asked his father, the child who had seizures possessed by a demon, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. You ever feel that when you're praying? Oh, I feel that. God, I want to pray this, and I just, I just don't have, I don't know that I'm there. I don't know that I have the faith. And, and we actually have a picture of God yanking away from us what he desperately wants to give us because we're struggling with our belief. You have a terrible picture of God, and you have a terrible picture of Christ's righteousness in your life. We are his children, royal priests, a chosen nation. And when we come to God and we say, God, I need this, but I don't know what to do. And, I, and I, I have a theology of suffering and I recognize that I may not get this and I understand that. It, and you won't be less of a God if you don't give it to me. But I'm here and I don't know what else to pray for. And I, and I don't know how much my faith is. But God, I come to you, help my unbelief. I believe that was what was happening in Acts 12. And God did it, and they were amazed. They were just surprised that Peter got out of prison. And I'm sure they said, how did this happen? And he told them. And they were like, you're kidding me. (laughs) Imagine what would happen if we sought the Lord. So, how do we pray as a church? opportunities for us. One, I think during our church service, our congregational prayer time, 
we should recognize that as the weighty moment that it is. The gathered local church. If you're physically able, we kneel before the Father. Listen, if you're not physically able, God's not looking at you going, well, I'm not going to honor you. We can kneel even in our hearts, amen? But we choose it as a, as a sign for us because as Americans, we get very arrogant and we think we're kings. And it helps to remind us when we kneel, if we're able, that we are not kings, but we serve a great king. We come before him. And so when Matei said, pray that the Lord would open our eyes to the scriptures, that as a gathered body of believers, you would seek an earnest prayer. God, we need you today. We need to hear from your word today. God, I don't need to hear from Jason. Amen. I need to hear from the word. I need to hear from the Bible. I need your Holy Spirit to open my eyes up. I need you to, I need you to encourage my distressed and discouraged heart. I need you to convict me of the sins that I have played with too carelessly. I need help, God. And when the gathered church comes together like that, oh, I believe great things happen. We can't take that as a little checkbox. During our worship time, I'm, I'm, I'm laying my cards on the table of things I haven't told you about yet. I've, I've kind of said a few things, but let me tell you what I hope for as a church. Some of y'all are going to get really uncomfortable. <laughs> That's okay. I don't care. You know what I would love to have happen? I would love for you to walk into this building and see somebody and the Lord just put it on your heart. That person's been struggling. I got a, I got a prayer request text for them today or yesterday from Lucas. He's singing, you are my all. And you just find that person. You walk across it now and say, can I just pray for you? What would happen if we kept sitting in a chair and we started moving and praying over other people in our church? Let me tell you what happened. A 19-year-old kid on the front row of a church will have his life changed. He'll be preaching in a pulpit when he's 45, forever impacted by what he saw when he was 19. That's what could happen. That you would plan time with other believers outside of the regular church service together and, yes, have dinner, yes, have fun, yes, laugh. But you would say, can we just spend some time and earnestly seek God for this specific thing in our lives right now? Wouldn't it be great to walk at a church that when your marriage is struggling, you could go to a handful of people that you know well and say, my, my marriage is struggling. And what would not come out of our mouth is a bunch of advice, but instead we go, can we pray? Can we pray? I'll get Preston Merchant said, he was, y'all don't know him. I was with him one day. Uh, he's a unique guy. We were in a restaurant one day when somebody, I don't remember who it was, they came up, I just got to love him for this. They, he came up and they made a comment and they said, I wish I'd just pray for us about that. You know what he did? He's like, well, let's just do that. He got right out of his booth and, we, and I was like, oh, we're doing this now? <laughs> you know what Preston believed? That that's the most important thing to do. Can we not move past saying, I'll pray for you, and move to, let's pray now? Imagine what God would do. Can we just, can we just be honest? I'm way over time. 
I know. It's okay. Good. Here we go. We're going to keep going. Can, can we just admit that 99% of the time when we say, I'll pray for you, we do not pray for you? And we, can't, we have to quit calling ourselves a praying church then. What would happen? So I called one of my good buddies, Ryan Douglas, a couple days ago. We were talking about church stuff and some of the things we're dealing with here. And he was, he was really, really busy, and he said, I'll be praying about that. I said, thanks, brother, and we talked, and he, he's got some difficulties, and I said, I'll be praying for that. Anyway, two days later, I'm driving down to Houston, and he calls me. He said, hey, man, what's going on? I said, I'm much. He said, hey, I just got to admit something. I told you I would pray for you a couple days ago on the phone, and, and I'm just, I've made a commitment in 2020 to quit saying that kind of stuff. And so can I just pray for you over the phone right now? Oh. No. <laughs> of course. Of course. And here's another opportunity. When I came to this church and we replanted, we had a list of prayer requests that waited till Sunday to read over. Now we have live, thank you, Lucas, live, and some of you are like, he texts so much. Well, we are so sorry that we're sending too many prayer texts out. What would happen if you got a prayer text and we actually either right then prayed or wrote it down or set a reminder or set an alarm to pray at a different time or, or, are you ready? You call that person that's on the prayer request and you say, hey, it's Joey Sutton. I just got a prayer request for you. Can, can I just, you have, you have 30 seconds? Uh, yeah, okay. Can I just pray for you right now? What would happen? That's what it means to be a praying church. I want our DNA to be what our pillar says, and that is that we believe in prayer, that we believe in it. So there's two things facing us right now. I'm going to have Keith come. He's going to play for us in a minute. 